Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good morning to you out there in TV land. Hope to see you here soon in person. Right, Mom? Good to, have, good to have mom back with us today. She's been missing a lot because of quarantine and, you know, just bad habits. We were talk- I'm just kidding. I might have her share something a little bit later because uh, I think I have a short sermon. Uh, before I get into it today, uh, today's the last day. This is the last time we gather as a church in 2020, right? Woohoo! And, uh... This is the last day to sign up for small groups. There are still a few slots left. We would love to have you join one. Uh, there are, uh, a f- I don't know how many, but there's some that only have one slot left. But if you are a couple and would like to join it uh, together, that's fine. We'd, we'd prefer you join as a couple. So if, if we go one over the number of slots for that reason, that's fine. Uh, but please do that today. The uh, turnout has been tremendous. Really pleased with the number of people who have uh, joined those groups, and we really look forward to getting them started. Uh, yeah, 2020. I was going to say something about 2020. How many times have you heard it? How many times have you said it? Let's just get through this stupid year. Let's get out of 2020 and into the new year, right? And we know that's not how it works, right? The earth will begin its new journey around the sun, but we'll, there, there are likely to still be problems in the world. They don't magically go away because the number changes on the calendar. And that kind of plays into the theme of anticipation and deliverance that we've been talking about the last few weeks during this season. This yearning for things to be fixed, to be right. This longing for rescue. And you know what? Things are going to get better, I believe. But things will never be right. They will not be right until Jesus comes back. We need to be settled with that. And I'm talking about circumstances in the world, world problems. We can certainly be right with God before Jesus manifestly returns. But this world is not going to be right until Jesus comes back and makes it right. And this is one of the difficult things, and we'll talk about this as we kind of move in a a different direction over the next few weeks. We'll talk about this this tension, I guess, but one of the difficult things about being a believer, not just a believer in Christ, but a believer in the word of faith message and the authority of the believer is keeping our priorities right. And that includes distinguishing between things that moments and circumstances where we can expect our faith to change things. The difference between what I can believe for and what I have the biblical authority to believe for in my life, in my family, in my sphere of influence versus what I can speak over the world at large. But, uh, and really, don't get me wrong, uh, all I really mean by that is it's natural and I believe it's right, of course, it's correct for for us to want the world to be better, for our circumstances to be pleasant, for the challenges to be few. And as we've mentioned recently, we, uh, 
as believers in uh, the freest nation in the world have become accustomed to having things relatively easy. I mean, relative to the rest of the world. And that's only the big picture. Sure as I say something like that, somebody will say, I haven't had it easy. I agree. I hear what you're saying. Um, but even in this great land, home of the, oh, my goodness. This is the greatest country in the history of humanity. There's no better place and time to live, I believe, than America today. But even right here, there are, there's somebody today, right at this moment, maybe not right in this room, but certainly in this nation, who is having the worst day of their life. I'm not saying that to depress you. That's a reality. And I'm going somewhere with this, but just to kind of illustrate it, many of you know Riley spent the last few days in the hospital. He spent Christmas in the hospital. We took him to the ER Wednesday night because he was experiencing some pretty serious shortness of breath. And uh, took him into the ER, and they admitted him because of his low blood oxygen levels. And they ended up keeping him until yesterday. He didn't get home until yesterday afternoon as they just wanted to continue to monitor him and make sure he could get through the night without supplemental oxygen. Uh, but his hospitalization threw our whole family's Christmas plans into confusion. Uh, we couldn't just say, well, let's just meet tomorrow because we didn't know when he was getting out, didn't know when he was going to be discharged. And Riley was a terribly impatient patient. You should see the text. And Beth, bless her heart, you know, I spent the first night with Riley and Beth came in the next day and took over. And then he started getting belligerent about, when am I leaving? I feel fine. Let's get out of here. And, and he's sending me text after text after text. Come get me. Please, Dad. Please, take me home. And then as he, why don't you exercise your parental rights and get me out of this hospital? They can't keep me here against your will, can they? <laughs> Riley, please. And Beth is calling me, Scott, he's driving me crazy. Will you talk him off the ledge, you know? And then, he's, then he'd chill out a little bit. I talked to our family doc uh, who was telling me, you know, did they give him a steroid shot? And I said, yeah. He said, steroids will kind of make you belligerent sometimes. So let that kind of mellow out. But all that to say, I'm sympathetic because this was probably, in Riley's long 17 years, probably the worst Christmas he ever had. And it was a tough one for us as a family our family unit and the family at large was inconvenienced by this. But you know what? It hardly rises to the level of tragedy, does it? Millises, Canfields, Gullifords, would you agree with that? And I told Riley, you know, guess what? You're 17. He's 17, and that means he spent his time there in the pediatric ward. It's kind of funny. They've got, they've got nurses there or, or, and, and social workers and, and people who do what they can to make children comfortable. So here's my son who's trying very hard to grow a beard. And it's a beautiful beard from here down. <laughs> it's, it's lusher and fuller than mine from here down. I just, but there he is, and here comes, <laughs> here comes this sweet lady into the room. Would you like a coloring book? And he was really polite. He goes, I, I really don't like coloring that much. I'm not good at it. And I said, bless your heart. You know, I probably would have said, coloring book? I've got a beard. I don't color. But, they, uh, but because it's the, the pediatric ward, guess what that meant? Get, it meant I got to stay in the room with him. 
And I said, Riley, I know you're miserable, but if you were 18, you would be spending this time alone, thanks to COVID. And guess what? There were plenty of people who were spending the night alone on Christmas, and it was driving them to despair, and their families as well. It broke my heart to think about. And guess what? That wasn't my plan for Christmas. It wasn't Riley's plan for Christmas. But Beth and I were both, from the get-go, very keenly aware of how good we had it. Never lose sight of the good things in life, even when you don't have everything in life that you want. God is still good. There were some people in Nashville that had a pretty nasty Christmas morning, right? When that RV exploded on the street. Oh my, there's no shortage of tragedy and general nastiness right here in America, even on Christmas Day. And what can we do? What would be better than for God just to appear on the scene and fix it? Can he do that? Could he do that? Open your Bibles if you've got them and you really better have to get in the habit of doing that. Isaiah chapter 63. And Isaiah is in the middle of a longish prayer here that we're going to read just a portion of. And we'll begin in verse 17. Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 17, we read, O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servants' sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old, over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. Now, right off the bat, we have something like a difficult passage in verse 17 when he says, well, why have you caused us? Why have you made us stray from your ways? Uh, you know, did God ordain that they stray from his commandments? Of course not. Some commentators simply point out that this should be rendered, why have you allowed us to stray from you? And that really is, in one sense, closer to the meaning, but fully fleshed out. And in the context of this whole chapter, which I encourage you to read, this whole chapter and the next one, you'll see that, he is, uh, that Isaiah, praying this on behalf of the people, he's acknowledging their guilt. He's not blaming God for their situation. Uh, and it's clear, it's clear, again, when you read it in context, but... There is this sad plea in the middle of the prayer asking essentially two things. One, why did you make us in such a manner that it is possible for us to stray from your ways? It's kind of the free will question comes into it. And the second one is, why don't you manifest yourself in an obvious and powerful way so that we cannot help but return to you? Here he's saying, uh, and again, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but if you read it in context, we're in a bad spot here. And I understand we've gotten ourselves in this bad spot. It's our sinfulness. It's our, it's our lostness and our wandering hearts that have caused us to be out from under your blessing. But if you would just bless us again, drive out the enemy, then we would return to you. Look, Lord, this land and this city that you gave us, we only got to enjoy it for a short time, and now it is inhabited by and ruled by godless people. And now, 
We, your special people, are indistinguishable from people who have never known you. And he continues in chapter 64. Uh, in verse 1, it says this. is my favorite part of this. And he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, when you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. Yes. He's looking at these are the worst possible circumstances we can imagine. Here we are, a people who are supposed to be enjoying this great inheritance from a God who promised this land and this city to us, and we are outside looking in, wanting it back so badly, and God, if you would just show up on the scene and scare the bad guys out of our land. The earthquake little thunder, little lightning, little fire. Manifest your presence in such an obvious manner that these heathen nations will immediately recognize that you, our God, are in fact the God. Now, if you read on, again, you'll see that Isaiah doesn't stop there. He goes on clearly to acknowledge Israel's and Judah's complicity in their current circumstances, but this still grabs me when I read it because this is what I want too. God, just show up, fix things. Put us back on top. All it would take is for you to show up. Make the mountains tremble and burn. And the part that just kind of stabs me when I read it is, make your name known to your adversaries that the nations, meaning the heathen, would tremble at your presence. Now there is a there's an evangelistic application or a missional application, I guess, to that, but that's really not the heart of this passage. What's sad about it is we should have that longing to have him reveal himself to us in a manner that can cause us to tremble. Know what I'm saying? Back in... Uh, Exodus, we see this moment after they have been, they've been rescued, they've been delivered from bondage in Egypt, they are gone, they've seen the plagues, they have seen the splitting of the Red Sea, they've seen Pharaoh's army drowned, they've seen many, many signs and wonders and miracles that got them out of Egypt to where they are at this moment. And God tells Moses at this point, hey, look, get the people ready for something I'm going to do. Uh, they've seen some things that I have done. But, and they know, kind of know, that you are the man. You're the one I'm using to lead them out. What I'm going to do is I'm going to speak with you in their presence. I'm going to manifest myself in a particular way in a few days here. So get the people ready. I want them clean. I want them purified. And I want them to come right to the base of the mountain. Don't cross this line. Don't, don't let them climb the mountain. But I want them close. And then I'm going to come down and I'm going to talk to you. And they're going to hear me speaking to you so that there'll be no doubt that I'm speaking to you. And then they'll listen to you. And so they do. And in Exodus, uh, we'll pick this up in 19... Exodus 19, verse 16. It says, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning 
that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the, last blast, I'm sorry, when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And God begins to speak, giving Moses the commandments. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18... We read this, now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. What I want you to see here is that the people did not really want to witness God in this intimate a manner. They didn't want to see God in this kind of power and manifestation for them. All they wanted of God at that moment was for him to exercise his power against their enemies. What God did in Egypt was great. It was powerful. It was miraculous. But it was his power exercised against Egypt to get them out and on their way to where they wanted to go. When it came time for an intimate encounter with God, they were like, all right, you know what? If the whole thing is about proving that God has spoken to you, we believe it. We accept you as our leader, but we don't want to hear that voice again. It's too scary. You go up there and listen to God and come down and tell us what he says. His voice is too much for us. And Moses is saying that in this time, this, this manifest presence of God, that time in the manifest presence of God will do a world of good for them, for their lives, especially in terms of keeping them from sinning, which, remember, that's mankind's great problem in the first place, right? That the great thing they had to look forward to was not simply being free from bondage in Egypt, not even possessing their own land, but being in right relationship with God, their deliverer. Everything else flows from that. Now, we could diverge here and once again talk about how uh, Israel's failure to grasp God's plan how God desired to place them in a good land and protect them and prosper them and heal them, all so that they could freely worship him. The people generally saw it as more of, a, well, God's on our side, so we can have this land and we can enjoy his blessings, and we'll try to remember him for doing that. We'll keep the covenant so that we can have the blessings. And I could... Uh, it's something we can talk about a little bit later. It's not really the direction I'm going today, but sometimes I do wonder if we've spent too much time and energy fighting for and celebrating and claiming our right to freely worship and pray and not enough time worshiping and praying. Do you know what I'm saying? Claiming those rights, declaring those rights, fighting for those rights, but not exercising those rights. 
Anyway, God wanted to use Israel to show the world how good he is and to draw the other nations to himself. Israel just wanted to keep God to itself and enjoy not him, but his blessings. And as you know, they forgot God and they lost the blessings. And then they remembered God and got him back and forgot God and lost him again, this whole cycle again. And then finally, the judgment came against Israel and then Judah in exile. And we have Isaiah's prayer, which we've read some, some of this morning. And again, recognition that they have brought all this on themselves. And the centuries go by, and even as the Jews are allowed to return to their homeland, they never ascend to that glory and that power that they enjoyed before the exile. So their, ho their hopes eventually begin to settle down on God's great promise, which is what? Which is who? The Messiah. And we've already discussed in the last few weeks how their expectations uh, differed from God's plan in that regard. They envisioned a different kind of redemption than the one God was going to provide through Jesus Christ. But now again, we come to this question of why Christmas is such an important moment. Again, we're not commanded to celebrate it every year. And as we've already talked about, we probably do in some fashion every year, the real work, the real important thing about Jesus is that he died. The salvation that God promised was secured at the cross, not at the manger, right? The work of salvation was done there, and the resurrection of Christ was the ultimate victory. The death and resurrection of Christ is the absolute turning point of human history. But read this with me. This is in Luke chapter 2. This is right after the part we read last week, which was uh, the shepherds and the manger. And uh, in this, in, in this uh, still in Luke chapter 2, we see Joseph and Mary taking Jesus to Jerusalem for his circumcision and to be presented at the temple and his official naming. And in Luke 2, beginning in verse 25, it says this, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon didn't see the crucifixion. He didn't see the resurrection. But he saw Jesus. He embraced Jesus. He held Jesus, and it was enough for him. You gotta ask, I have to ask myself, <laughs> is he enough for me? Do you ever read a book? Anybody ever read a book? Ever read a book or watch a movie or have an experience? where there's a tense uh, or a scary moment, a confrontation perhaps, 
And everything changes in a moment when a certain person walks in the room and you know everything's going to be all right. I can remember, uh, I saw Star Wars in the Virginia Theater, the original Star Wars, the good one. And uh, there is a, anybody, it's a little bit of an obscure movie. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Star Wars, now known as A New Hope. There's a scene toward the end of it where, spoiler alert, uh, Luke is uh, flying his little X-Wing fighter through this trench trying to get in position to fire his, what were they? If I say proton or photon? Proton Proton torpedoes into the exhaust shaft, which will uh, theoretically destroy the Death Star. And uh, people are being shot and blown up and things are looking really grim. And Darth Vader is zeroing in. He's a second away from firing a shot that's going to kill Luke and destroy his, his ship. And then who shows up on the scene? Han Solo, who had ducked out. The movie has made you fall in love with this guy. He's a rogue. He's selfish, but something so likable about him. And we're all disappointed when he leaves with his reward and lets these guys fight on their own because he could have done so much good. And then here's Luke about to get shot. And then out of nowhere, this blast comes. Vader's ship is thrown out of the way. And, and, and when we realize that the Millennium Falcon has appeared on the scene, everybody in the, in the theater, yeah, they went wild. I had never seen that or experienced that in a movie before. It's still pretty rare. You're cheering, and you, for people on a screen, they can't hear you cheer. It's a movie. And here's the thing, only reason I bring that up, is at that moment, the Death Star had not been destroyed. The Death Star is still a huge threat. They have to destroy it within a few seconds, or it's going to fire this giant... Uh, beam and destroy the the planet where the rebel base is it's not done salvation hasn't happened deliverance hasn't taken place but han solo and his ship are on the scene and everybody in the theater knows everything's going to be okay the right guy is here at the right time you see it in westerns you see it in superhero movies you read it in books when somebody just walks in the room things casey at the bat everybody was confident and they turned out to be wrong in that case spoiler alert if you ever read that poem But there was something about this. I think that Simeon knew that feeling on a grand scale. You know, Judea was still under Rome's thumb. The deliverance had not yet been accomplished. Jesus, again, had not been crucified. He had not been raised from the dead. But Jesus, the Messiah, had shown up. Simeon didn't say, I've met the one who will one day save Israel. He said, my eyes have seen your My eyes have seen your salvation. Because you see, this is crucial. Jesus didn't come to show us the way to God. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus didn't just come to provide salvation. Jesus is our salvation. He is our provision. He is our healing. He is our protection. God said to Abraham, what? I'm your shield and your very great reward. None of this is meant to suggest in any way that we ignore the promises that God has made to us. All the promises God made to the Old Testament 
Jew are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And yes, we should still pray for our world. Yes, we should still pray for our nation. But we pray for our world and we pray for the nation for the world's sake and for the nation's sake, not our sake. We have promises. We have a God. We're good. Yes, there are promises we stand on, and by faith and patience, we inherit those promises. But we're good because Jesus is here. This is another thing we're going to be talking about in the next couple weeks is this idea of Jesus clearly promising, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And yet, are we or are we not waiting for his return? Is he with us or is he not? Of course he's with us. It's, it's, the, it's the glory of the Trinity. We go from God for us to God with us to God in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's a very potent reality, and it should absolutely make a difference in the things that we experience, the authority we walk in, our enjoyment of the Christian life, but don't mistake it for what lies ahead. Even in the midst of his power, his miracles, the things that he does in our midst, we still see now is through a glass darkly. It's going to get better when Jesus manifestly returns. Listen, there's a lot going on in this broken world. In the middle of the brokenness, in the middle of the upheaval, in the middle of evil, like we have never seen in our lives, the redemptive work of Christ continues to change lives at a pace that is nothing short of astonishing. I was hearing something again just yesterday or the day before about how many how many Muslims in Iran are, have, been, have come to Christ just in the last, I think, 10 years. It's gone from, I, 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 I was driving, so I couldn't write it down, but I probably should have stopped or, or done a recording. I think it said statistically now there were roughly 20,000 Christians, and now it's over a million. And a huge percentage of those, I don't know if it's a majority, but a large number of these have come to Christ because of dreams. This used to be something, a story that would slip out once in a while that somebody had this miraculous encounter with Jesus in a dream. This is happening all over the Muslim world these days. That's exciting. And of course, that's not the only place it's happening. China continues to grow. South America is exploding all over the world. The redemptive work of Christ continues to change lives. And that is good, good news. But again, this world is never going to be fixed until he returns. This world needs Jesus. It needs Jesus. It doesn't need Christianity, it needs Christ. And our greatest mission, our only mission, is to live and preach the gospel of Christ. And if we're going to do that effectively, we personally have to be centered on him. Many of you have asked, if we are going to do a fast this year. And we are. Starting on January 10th, which is uh, two weeks from today, I'm inviting you to join. This isn't a requirement. You don't, uh, you don't slip into a lower class of membership if you decide not to participate. But we urge you to participate in a three-week fast. And... Uh, We'll talk more about it next week, but just, to, just as a heads up for those of you who may not be familiar with it, we don't do a total fast. It's not what we declare, 
but we do ask you to give up something, whether it's a, a particular meal like a dinner or if it's a particular class of food like meat or sugar or something else, and to abstain from that for three weeks and dedicate, use that time to get our focus on God, use, this, the, use the missing of the things we become accustomed to to uh, remind us to spend more time uh, praying, uh, to, to turn more of our attention on God and his word. We'll, uh, we'll share more of the, the fast details later. But again, for three weeks. And I'm not really declaring a theme. You know, we used to do a, a year of fill in the blank. And we're not doing that for this year. We really didn't last year either. I know uh, we talked at the beginning of the year how many churches had embraced the 2020, a year of vision. <laughs> vision. How many of us saw this coming, right? No, I'm kidding. God saw it coming, didn't he? No, but I'd, uh, I know this sounds, uh, might sound a little bit vague, and praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. I know this sounds maybe a little bit vague or, or broad or something, but what I'd like us to do during this fast is, is uh, to spend more time thinking about meditating on, speaking to Jesus. I encourage you to read the Gospels through. What I'm pointing at is, is that even though God has indeed made great promises to us and even though he expects us to claim these promises, he's delighted. He is delighted when we exercise our faith to receive them. All of this is supposed to be taking place in the context of a vital, loving, and growing relationship with Jesus, who we should desire to know. What's the chief end of man? Hmm? What's that? To know God and enjoy him forever. To know God and enjoy him forever. If you're going to know God, you have to be born again. The process of relationship begins with the new birth. There's a recognition of, of the truth that we can't approach God as sinners, but that he has come to us. Remember, going back to this scene in Exodus, God told Israel, don't even try to come up this mountain. Don't touch it. Stand here. Stand close. But don't come to me. I will come down. And that's what he did. He came down to the mountain. And that's what he did 2,000 years ago as he came down to earth. He came down to offer himself to us. This is what he gives us. He didn't shout from heaven, do this and I will give you that. He came down and he offered us himself, God the Son. And my question is, can you be like Simeon? Can you embrace him? Can you hold him and say, he is enough? This is tricky because I am a faith guy. I'm a word of faith guy. And I believe in the promises. And I believe in speaking health and speaking provision and protection over me and my family and you, my church. But all of these really should just be side effects 
of having him. It's about him, not the stuff. It's about his face and not his hand, as you've probably heard many times. How do we embrace Christ? If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Stand up. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.